Hello and welcome to Blast Beats and Bicycles, the podcast edition. We're coming to you virtually as we have been since the lockdown has closed the radio station at uh, McAllister College. And very excited to have on the phone with us today Robert Mayfield, who is a very well-known U.S. track coach and participant in the track scene. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to great to get a chance to spend a little time with you. You have been around the track scene for a little while, and uh, I think a lot of people uh, would love to hear about how you got your start in cycling. Uh, yeah, so I started in, uh, I think, well, I started I started riding a bike as an adult more often, I guess I would say, in 2006, uh, kind of with the thought of I wanted to commute to work and, and, and lose weight and become more physically fit. Um <clears throat> And I was actually pretty overweight at the time. Uh, and, yeah, I, I literally just started, like, riding a bicycle around my block until I got to the point where, you know, it took me about 30 minutes, and I figured it would take me that long to ride to work. Uh, mm-hmm. And it ended up being about late. So well, I started commuting, and then, uh, you know, that was kind of my, my first foray into into bikes. Um you know, of course, like riding a bike, like stuff wears out and you need to get stuff fixed. So I started just going into my neighborhood bike shop, which was uh, this place called A&M um, in uh, South St. Louis. And the guy that owned it, Carl Becker, uh, his dad was actually the only American to finish the 1956 Olympic road race in Melbourne. So bike wow. racing kind of ran through Carl's veins, but it was, it was a one-man shop. Um, you know, it's really tiny, like... You know, all the money came from repairs and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, kind of slowly but surely he uh, planted the seed of, of bike racing in, in my brain. And I started, you know, getting in over my head, like getting better equipment and having to, you know, he would like front it to me and I would work it off at the store kind of thing. <laughs> That's great. Um, and then, you know, it took me a little while to actually get to the point of, uh, wanting to race and stuff like that. It was, it was, I wanted to do it for a while, but I just didn't really have the um, motivation to actually get up and do it until 2008. Uh, and I did my first road race and cyclocross races, and later that summer I did uh, some track racing at Penrose Park. So that 2008, that was your first year of uh, track racing? Yep. I did a lot of crashing and uh, <laughs> a lot of braking stuff. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Welcome to the world of track cycling, right? <laughs> oh, definitely. And what uh, Do you remember that first track bike that you had? Yeah, it was actually uh, it was a, it was a Raleigh Rush Hour, the steel one. Wow. Um, and, like, shortly after that, I ended up getting a, this kind of older orange Mazzi, uh, and then I kind of raced that a lot more. Mm-hmm. When when did you recognize that you had the ability to compete at a at an elite level? I don't I don't really think I ever did figure that out. Um, <laughs> I mean that was I, I I more or less just tried over and over. You know, my first elite nationals that I went to, uh, I didn't qualify for a single race. And the next year I went back again, and uh, I think I qualified for for one race. It took me like a, a pretty long time to figure it out. I, I just kind of didn't stop trying. When was that first year you went to nationals? Uh, I think it was twenty. It was either twenty eleven or twenty twelve. Okay, so you had the three three or so years 
of track racing under your belt before you went there for the first time. Yeah, and, and I was, you know, at the time the track in St. Louis was really bumpy, so I didn't really, I'd say that like my track chops were, were pretty poor in comparison. I mean, we, when I first started, there was only maybe 10 or 11 guys that showed up to race on a Thursday night at the track. Um, this guy, Joe Walsh, used to run the racing there, and, you know, he would also race, but he was sort of like the most successful track racer in the area. And, um, you know, kind of once I started getting into the mix more and not getting dropped and stuff like that, I started to do stuff like drive up to Northbrook or drive to Indy. Um, you know, part I wanted to get the category upgrades, mm-hmm. but I also just wanted to see what it would be like to race on a track that wasn't like totally beat up and <laughs> it was frankly pretty difficult to ride. So, so, so with those rides in uh, Indy and Northbrook, Illinois, what were some of the things that you learned and what was sort of that process of starting to, to hone your, your talents? Um, yeah, I, it, it was kind of more, more of the same there. It was just like at a faster speed, I'd say. Um, you know, and I, I don't really think I learned too terribly much going to those early races there. It wasn't until much later when I uh, actually branched out and went to uh, – that six-year classic that I sort of I started to see like what track racing was from a kind of broader perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm trying um, to remember what year was it the first time you came up here for the fixed-year classic. Was it in 2012? Yeah, it must have been 2012. And at what point, if, if at all, did you start working with a coach of your own? Did you ever work at, with a coach? Uh, yeah, so when I went to that race, I think I had just started working with um, John Fraley. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, in part, I just thought I could get faster, but a lot of the information seemed to be, like, hard to get a hold of for, like, how mm-hmm. to do it. You know, we didn't have a lot of stuff happening locally where you could, you know, learn from something. And, you know, it, it just wasn't it wasn't available to me anyway. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Fraley had was, like, a little more outgoing about, offering me information and stuff like that even before I hired him hired him as a coach. Uh and I started driving up to Kenosha pretty regularly to train with him and this other guy, Danny Robertson. Mm-hmm. Um and, and so that was kind of like that was my, my intro into the you know, thinking about things maybe differently. And I'm sure, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about this in a little while, your own coaching activities, but, you know, even still there aren't a ton of people who specialize in track coaching did you you struggle to find i mean john is a great a great coach but did you struggle to find people who could help you before you uh decided to work with john yeah i I couldn't really find anybody you know for the most part you know people that are participating in track cycling locally anywhere right it's more like their hobby you know or or, or they're like crit racers or something and they just kind of like to do it as an aside um but that sort of the nuanced stuff it just uh, it took a long time to meet the right people and things like that. And I actually ended up moving to Portland, Oregon, sort of with the idea that, like, they had a pretty vibrant track scene at the time. And this was in um, 2015. And, you know, I, like, I knew some people out there that had won national championships or whatever, and I figured, you know, that would be a good place to learn. Um, it just so happened that, like, as soon as I got there, a lot of those people sort of quit or move on or just kind of did other things. That's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I picked up enough just by, by being there. Well, and the proximity to uh, uh, Mary Moore up in uh, 
uh, Seattle and Burnaby, that had to help too, be having a chance to travel a little bit more easily. Oh, definitely. And, and you know, for, for, for what I thought the sport was like, you know, like stuff that was difficult for me to wrap my, you know, to kind of get my hands around in terms of, you know, like how to race or how to sprint and, and things like that. Um, you know, Burnaby was just like going to another planet. I mean, the, the <laughs> level of competition there was, uh, was so high and it actually, I mean, continues to be high to this day. It's, there's no shortage of, of really good bike racers that come out of that area. Yeah. And they get a lot of people to come up there for their, their winter events in particular, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, for the most part, it's just kind of locals still. I mean, really? and, and they're all very good. It, it's, it, it, they're shockingly good actually. Um, but I, you know, I just, I was just writing a thing the other day about, or that, you know, where I mentioned <laughs> my observations with that track. And one thing that was really crazy to me is just the amount of, um, like national team riders that come from that, that track specifically, hmm. um, you know, and they just have really good programs and, you know, the level's high. So if you have any kind of talent, you know, you're, you're immediately kind of on this fast track to, to learn as much as you can. Interesting. So it's almost like a feeder system out there. Yeah, but I mean, almost without even trying, you know, it's more just like, you know, I guess like good sort of brings good, right? It just maintains yep. itself. Sure. As you as you think back on, you know, some of the milestones, some of the things that you did to sort of move your career, it seems like you had sort of some stepping stones along the way. What What do you think are some of the key milestones for you as you've gotten better over the course of your career? Uh, well, kind of, as we mentioned, just the, I'd say that the, the Northwest scene, you know, kind of mm -hmm. making myself a part of that. Um, I like won my first road race out there and I definitely won some, um, you know, won, won some of the bigger track races that they have. So it was kind of, you know, it, to me, it was something I, before I moved out there, I went and raced there and, you know, totally blown away at the level. And I kind of thought, oh, that must, that's the top, you know, like, well, how do I get there? Well, I'll just move there and figure it out. And, um, you know, so that was kind of, a, uh, that, that was definitely a big one. And then uh, shortly after that, I ended up moving to Colorado um, a couple years ago. And, and that's been, you know, again, it's like another like eye-opening thing where, um you know, you see another level past that one. Um, you know, and then I guess also the international racing and stuff like that that I've taken part in. Um, mm -hmm. Racing with E-Town, too, you know. I mean, that's like an American institution. So. Right. Well, you hit, uh, hit a pretty big milestone uh, this winter, actually. Um, you hit a sub-11 second flying 200. Uh, that's a pretty big accomplishment. Congratulations. Yeah, it's something I never thought I'd do actually. Um, so thank, thanks for <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that are like, that's not a big deal, but uh, you know, for sure for me, it's like you know, I think my first one was probably like 15 seconds, you know, and then yep. when I went 12-2, uh, you know, people were like, oh, I never thought I'd see you do that. You know, so it's just kind of a long progression on that. Um, you know, and I had gone like low 11s before, so I wasn't really you know, it, it, it was a weird day. I'd actually done a track workout earlier in the day with um, this Austrian rider that we had um, in town who's getting ready for uh, the world championships. And, um, 
And then I was actually supposed to be working at the track that night, and I just asked my boss if I could do the 200, and then I would work for the rest of the night. Wow. Um, <laughs> so, so I just kind of rolled up, you know, sort of cold and did it, and then, yeah, that was it. So uh, I'm, I'm just really curious to know, I mean, it sounds like the stars kind of aligned for you, but you weren't necessarily going after anything monumental. What was going through your head as you, as you sort of got yourself ready to roll? Uh, well, I, you know, I kind of had this, uh, you know, I'd ridden, I, the last one I'd ridden was like 11.3 or something, and so okay. I, I kind of knew what I needed needed to do, and right before I was getting ready to do it, um, one of the local sprinters who, who's uh, super good, I'm, I, he he was at the Fixture Classic last year, um, Joe Christensen, oh, sure. told me to put on a 12 and just go for it, and uh, so I just did that. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> so I, I, I remember, you know, it's like a 111-inch gear or something, but uh, ended up ended up being the right choice. And and so was that? Had you ridden a, a, a gear that that size before? Yeah, um, like in training, like doing overgear stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, I I've never done a 200 in that big of a gear, and you know, never never really thought of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I do a lot of like flying 500s or something like that in training, and you know, I I'd probably never ride a gear that big for that. But yeah. you know, it was, it was kind of trending in that direction anyway. I knew I I needed to come in as fast as possible. Did uh, Did you at any point during the sprint have uh, sort of the presence of mind to think that oh, this might be something? Uh, I mean, it felt fast but the gear also just felt monstrous so i wasn't really sure my like the way it felt of like this could go either way it was either super slow or you know it was <laughs> what i wanted did did you feel like that was that that the gear choice was wrong i mean i can just imagine like oh my god i can't turn this thing over anymore <laughs> yeah i mean i definitely couldn't have gone any bigger <laughs> like that, that wouldn't have gone anymore well, that's pretty exciting. So, how was uh, how was your shift at the, at the track after you got done with your with your effort? Ah, yeah, my legs definitely hurt. You know, it was, uh... <laughs> that's fantastic. It's a, it's a pretty exciting thing. I mean, not a lot of people can say that they were they did a two hundred meter flying effort under eleven seconds. So, uh, so it's pretty it's pretty exciting. Oh, definitely, and, and it was uh, yeah, it would be I, I'd I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that like I'd done a lot of training previous to that um mm-hmm. just because i had uh, just gotten back from australia and doing a lot of racing in vancouver and stuff and you know so i was it was more or less going pretty good yeah are you uh is that is that a goal that you want to continue to uh to beat i mean do you feel like you want to try and um put some focus on getting that time lower um i mean it's yeah i'm not really a sprinter so it's not anything that i put a lot of emphasis on um sure but but for sure you know it'd be nice to go go faster than that but i don't uh you know like at a certain point whatever i'd have to do to myself to go faster than that will probably take away from the other things that i'm i'm good at um, right you know or would rather excel in mm-hmm. um you know but i i think all that stuff is related right i mean all the whole time that i started you know there was kind of like this you know, well, if you're a sprinter, you do this, and if you're an endurance rider, you do this. But, you know, in, in reality, it's like the, there's like a genetic determination that's going to make make you good at stuff, and and sure. um, you still need to improve on it. You know, what I mean, I think the the fastest 
uh, endurance riders are still, you know, in the world anyway, or like low tens or something, you know, yeah. and the people at nationals that are winning stuff, and they're total, fully capable of those speeds, you know, like, so it's, it's still, uh, you know, like I said, it's just related. Absolutely. Well, and it's it's critical. I mean, you talked about the Christmas carnivals a little bit, and you know the the Madison and points races. Uh, sprinting is an essential skill. Uh, so even if you're a you know quote unquote pure on enduro, you still have to have the ability to make a jump, right? Oh, definitely. And you know, and, and even that, it's like um, you know most mo- most of the strong endurance riders they can ride a, a really strong kilo you know if you look at the team pursuit today you know that they're they're starting very fast you know the mm-hmm. the speeds they're going are essentially in that range they're just holding it yeah that's a crazy crazy thing <laughs> it's amazing to see how how fast those those speeds have have risen and how how low those times have gone so quickly over the last few years Oh, it's unbelievable! And like this last summer at T Town, it was—I uh, mean, it, it, it hurt, but it was a real treat to get to race with some of those um, top team pursuit guys, like from the New Zealand squad and stuff like that. And they were just so strong, uh, and, and the races just never slowed down. I mean, it was—it was, it was just—it was crazy how fast it was, and just it, it really for everybody should be like eye-opening to see like, you know, what that combination of like talent and hard work can get people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did uh, did you encounter any of the Aussies or the Kiwis that you saw in T-Town when you were down in Australia for the carnivals? No, I kind of I raced the um, so you know kind of like the the main event carnival is like that the Tasmanian carnival. Yep. Um, and and uh, I actually went to one that was in Sydney, Australia, which was my second year going. Um, and it was put on by this guy named Paul Kraft, who d- does a he's an absolute like mad genius in terms of how he puts his racing together like you know the main complaint people always have about going to a track meet is that you just sit around for so long between the races right and uh you know he had all these different like handlers and just a whole different system and idea for how he wanted the races to go so every night every grade a b c and d would race you know men and women uh would get six races in and then we'd be out of there so quickly you know there'd be barely any time to like you, you could, there'd be some times where in between races I couldn't even change gears. So no I was kidding. Yes, yeah, they went off that quick. Wow. Um, but, you know, it was it's still a lot of, uh, like, just, you know, even though it wasn't the Tasmanian carnivals, there was still a really high level of competition. I mean, um, you know, the guy that ended up winning the overall is the, the Australian junior record holder. Um, and, you know, it, it definitely just the overall level there is high. I'll put it this way. I was, I was the oldest guy in the A grade by about 10 years. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. How did you get connected with the, with those events in the first place? Um, so last year, um, Andrew Har- Carlberg um, had met this, this sprinter from a uh, city named Lizanne Wilmot. She's actually Canadian. Um, two-time Canadian Karen champion, and uh, you know she she lives in city and um, was was pretty close to the promoter and he was kind of asking around to see if anybody knew any Americans that would come over and um, she contacted Andrew and uh, then he he contacted me and we both went and the first time around it was actually like a two-person 
team event kind of six-day style where we would hmm. score points uh, to an overall for all the other racing, and then every night ended with a Madison. Um, but <laughs> he wasn't super well-versed in the Madison, just, you know, being a sprinter mm-hmm. and everything. And yeah. I mean, I wasn't at the time either, so it, it made for a pretty difficult uh you know, we get points in some individual races and then not really be able to like, close it in the Madison. Sure. Um, you know, but the, this time around, it was all individual. Every night still closed with the Madison. Um, so I ended up riding with a different partner every night. But um, well, That's interesting. Yeah, I had pretty good rides, though. I mean, I always got paired with somebody that was really good. Um, so the, the, the racing, is, was it was five days straight. Um, and each night was hosted by a different track in Sydney. Like they have enough tracks in one city to have wow. multiple nights of racing in a row. That's fun. And, um, yeah, so every club uh, in the region hosted a race. And these are and, all uh, long, flat tracks, right? Yeah, except for the um, the the indoor track that we got to race on. That was the uh, track from the 2000 Olympics. Oh, nice. Uh, and that track was. You know, definitely top-notch, really nice track. What was um, the atmosphere like? That was like a lot easier for me to race on. Yeah. <laughs> the flat tracks were took a little bit getting used to. I can imagine. The uh, the ride going through the turns had to be very different. Yeah, they're kind of like perfectly circular, so you're always steering. I don't, I, like, I can't really like describe it. There's no finishing straight, really. That's interesting. So are they are they all built around like a cricket pitch or a Australian rules football pitch or something like that? Yeah, uh, well, so I think one of them one of them had a cricket pitch in the center, and then the other one had an actual um, like soccer field. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know they were still big. They're four hundred and four hundred and twenty meters and four hundred and fifty meters. I think. Wow, it seems like it would take an hour to get around that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, the racing still was super fast and super good on those. Um, so you're just laying power down the whole time. There's no bloating or anything. Um, wow. What was the uh, what was the atmosphere like in the crowd? I mean, did you have decent crowds at the events? Yeah, there was, well, so there was one night where there was a pretty sizable crowd, and that was a race at a track called Tempe, and that was actually a 333 um, normal dimensions Uh and that was, uh, you know, that was definitely the the best night. It was, it was definitely like a rowdy crowd. Like, um, you know, anytime I'd be like struggling or something, I I would get heckled or or uh, you know, <laughs> or something like that. But but then they also would be like, if I attacked and went off the front, it'd be like this one corner of just absolutely drunk dudes chanting USA. So it was pretty funny. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, they had you in uh, in some pretty uh, pretty distinctive kit too. Those evil Knievel kits were are pretty classic. Did you wear that this year too and last year? Yeah, yeah, and that was actually uh, courtesy of uh, Gary Ryan at Vi Thirteen. He uh, he came up with that and he sent them the design and they loved it and it kind of went from there. Those are so cool. I want one so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually I crashed out one of them, so I've only got one left. Oh no! <laughs> well, it certainly uh, certainly get, got you uh, got you the attention, I'm sure, with that uh, distinctive uh, kit on your back. So what uh, what were the what were the events that you were involved in each night? What was uh, what what was the schedule like? 
Uh, it's, it was pretty similar every night where they would start out with, like, uh, kind of a scratch race just to shake things up. Um, and then, you know, the second race would usually be some sort of, like, wheel race qualifier for a final mm-hmm. uh, or a handicap race, I guess you yep. might know it as. Um, and those are really interesting. I mean, that's kind of like their style of racing. Um, and, and, you know, it's like the strongest people get put on scratch and then everybody gets, you know, some kind of designation of a metered advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first time I raced one, I didn't really understand it. And it, you know, it took me a few tries to really start to figure out um, what's going on exactly. But typically that's where like the race promoter or like, you know, you would call like a, a handicapper, chief handicapper or something like that. Um, they're creating like a story that they want to tell with the race. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going for like a dramatic finish sure. uh, typically. And, um, you know, if you play your cards right and you're, you give a good mark, you know, you could you could beat the best person just because they had to work that much harder to get there. Right. Um, you know, but kind of the the way a lot of this stuff shook up would we'd get to the end, um, you know, me and a few other scratch riders, and then you know it'd be like you know four of us versus like these four seventeen year old kids or something. And, oh, and I mean, they're they're absolutely racing for the line to win. I mean, they didn't line up just to participate. It's, it, it's, uh, it, it, there were some pretty like vicious sprint finishes at the end of those races. Um, but anyway, so you'd have to qualify for the final and then, um, there'd usually be a, a break in between and, and then we do a shorter sprint race. Then we would do a longer endurance race, uh, then the wheel race final. And then we would do a Madison after that. That's really, it sounds like a really fun evening of racing. It sounds like a really entertaining uh, schedule. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, it's it, it's all pretty exciting, and you get a lot of opportunities to, to try stuff. So, you know, like in the sprint races where I didn't stand a chance uh, against a lot of those kids, <laughs> yeah. you know, I would just save it for the endurance race and, um, you know, and try my hand there. How, uh, how long were the wheel races? Uh, the finals were like three or four kilometers long, so they're, they're not they're not long, but um, you know because you're riding a pretty big gear, you know, say like a uh, hundred and two or a hundred and four mm-hmm. inch gear or something like that. Um, you know, getting the gear started off the line is hard, and you usually have to take at least one or two turns once your group coalesces, and then sure. uh, if you make it to the end, you know, you catch the front markers and you have to sprint, then your legs are just so loaded up. It, it becomes uh, a very difficult race to try to uh, strategize for. It's the, the worst of the uh, uh, sprint and the worst of the endurance, right? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, then you're there, too, with, like, uh, you know, guys that have won uh, Junior Kieran World or something like that. You know, they're just mm-hmm. – uh, they also make selections, so it becomes it's, – it's super hard. That sounds like a lot of fun, though. Yeah, it's an absolute blast. I mean, everybody's got a really good attitude over there, too. I don't know how to really describe it other than, like, you know, you're banging bars with somebody and they're, or they're being aggressive, but then afterwards they're, like, you know, handing you a beer or introducing you to their mom or something. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly a, a characteristic, I think, of a lot of tracks, but it's nice to know that even at that level, people have got some, you know, they enjoy the, the spirit and the camaraderie in the infield. Oh, definitely. And, I, I mean, you know, it's it's really, over there, it's just a whole other other thing. You know, their, their, their traditions and their kind of storytelling about it is, is, is 
is pretty intact, you know, versus like over here, I think it's a little more disjointed. Yeah. How, how would you compare those events to something like a six day, you know, in Europe or some of the bigger events that go on here in the U.S.? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've always heard the six days are just like totally crazy in, you know, just uh, you know, even when you watch one, just the, the way the crowd inter- is interacting and engaged, it, that's just such a different thing. Um, but, you know, I, it's probably pretty comparable. I'd say it's comparable to the way, you know, the six year classic unfolds or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the Mary Moore Grand Prix or something like that, where, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, you know, I guess the first year I went to the Mary Moore Grand Prix, there was people literally 360 degrees all around the track. Like when you looked out, you couldn't see anything. Like you just wow. saw people. That's so, cool. um, yeah, I think, you know, it, it had that kind of atmosphere to it where it's just, uh, more of a picnic in a park, you know, mm-hmm. fun. So do you think you're going to go back again this year? Uh, I, I, w- I would like to, um, I think actually the, the race promoter, uh, may have retired. And I think mm-hmm. that was his last one. So, you know, unless someone picks up the slack and puts it on again, you know, I'd love to go back. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff over there. I didn't get to see, uh, you know, and there's a lot of other races in other parts, you know, like the, um, the Austral wheel race and like, uh, you know, stuff in Melbourne and stuff like that before then, um, you know, they've got their own, they've got their own other scene over there. Yeah. Uh, and I would love to do all that. You know, the Austral has been around for something like 150 years. Mm-hmm. That would be a pretty impressive achievement to be able to ride in that. Uh, Definitely. You uh, shifting gears a little bit. You mentioned early on uh, your your time, you know, getting started in St. Louis at Penrose Park, um, and you were involved in the effort to resurface and sort of relaunch that um, as a new viable venue. Can you talk a little bit about what your role was there and and how it all came together? Yeah. Um, so I, I mostly just kind of well, I, I spent a fair bit of time literally on my hands and knees helping to repatch certain parts of the old track that were falling apart, uh, which I, you know, and actually the first time I went to race at Blaine, uh, I got there and Christopher Ferris was doing repairs to the track and mm-hmm. I actually, you know, volunteered a little bit of my time to see how that went on. Um, which, which blew my mind that you guys are repairing that velodrome so often that way. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it gave me a kind of a different, uh, you know, like I, I wanted a smooth track <laughs> at the beginning, but I realized kind of the only way I was going to be able to make the track smoother was to um, organize some people together and try to, you know, take on some of those repairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, kind of, well, I don't want to get too lost in my notes here, but, um, you know, I, I, th- I thought my my best, best approach to that was going to just be getting the right people together. Like I don't have a lot of experience in um, community organizing or anything of that nature. Um, and I didn't like work in city government or I, I had any background in fundraising or anything like that. Um, so um, I, I met a guy who was big in the local racing scene named Scott Ogilvy, who was actually an alderman of uh, one of the neighborhood wards. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he he raced up the track and he raced and Chris and stuff like that, and he, he really enjoyed it. And he uh, he put a lot of effort into getting um, this park 
parks bonds bill put together. So basically all, all these parks in the St. Louis area needed stuff like, you know, basketball record, uh, basketball courts resurfaced or they needed new water fountains or uh, restroom repair, you know, just all these different things. And, uh, you know, it's a long, long list. Hmm. And at the very bottom of the list, he got the velodrome put on there. That's um, great. And when they went to, when they went to kind of vet that list, he fought pretty hard to get the velodrome like continued onto that next uh, kind of selection process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and eventually, I, I can't remember the exact dollar amount, but it was something like you know seven hundred thousand dollars or something. Wow. Um, to do do the resurface, and you know, I think they needed like a hundred thousand dollars more beyond that to actually like close the gap for all the things that needed to happen. Uh, but once that like larger chunk of money was set for the track, um, it, the the rest of that fundraising was easy. That's like where, you know, the GoFundMe's and stuff like that came into mm-hmm. play. Sure. Um, and then uh, I think there was a, a couple private donors that were pretty large that that kind of sewed the whole thing up. Yeah, that's that's huge to have that initial uh, impetus from the city to make that happen. But, and all that kind of came after a pretty big setback. Um, we're like kind of, uh, so I was part of like an original group to get the track resurfaced, and and part of that group split off with this other idea that they wanted to build a, a wooden 250 meter track out in Wildwood, Missouri, which mm. is like a suburb of St. Louis, basically. Um, and you know they actually didn't have the funding, and they were kind of telling different people that they did, and they were telling mm. other people that they were going to be able to, you know, make this like a, a great success. Um, but they didn't really have the data or the numbers or the clout to sort of pull all together. So mm. when that went to actually go before the city council of Wildwood, a lot of people complained. They didn't want a massive sports facility. They didn't want increased traffic. You know, it's a pretty mm. small little area. And, uh, you know, so it ended up getting shot down uh, almost immediately. Mm. And uh, so then a couple of years went by of no progress on any fronts. And then, you know, uh, Scott was actually able to, uh, help put that that whole thing together, and um, you know, basically in, in 2017, I started a club. Uh, I, I moved briefly moved back to St. Louis. I probably spent more time in Vancouver, BC, than I did actually in St. Louis that year. <laughs> uh, but I started a club anyway, and uh, got Scott on it, got some other people involved, and uh, that club continues to operate now. Um, and and you know they're more or less going to be taking over the, the management of the, the track moving forward. Yeah, I was going to ask you what the, how, it, uh, how it operates. I mean, what the, what the structure is for putting on races and maintaining the grounds and the park and all of that. So right now the, park, uh, the parks department basically takes responsibility for, you know, the, the grounds and everything. Um, and and the, uh, the club itself puts on the races and, uh, you know, promotes them and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you if anyone wants to ride the velodrome, they can just show up and get on it. I mean, it's in a public park, sure. which I think is actually like, to me, that's the most beautiful part about it. Um, yeah. Anyone can accept it. And you get a lot of people who come out and, and ride it, do you think? Do they, I mean, now that it's been up and running for a couple of years? Uh, you know, I... Well, so I've I've been back recently since it's been resurfaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back when I would train there more regularly, all the time I'd see people from the neighborhood coming to use the velodrome. I mean, they would, you know, either they just come ride their 
you know, kind of, they'd ride their bike around it or they would just like run or walk around it or hmm. ask me what I was doing there, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of <laughs> yeah, uh, different stuff like that. That's that's an interesting thing. It's it's a nice thing to be able to have it be accessible like that, and you know to welcome the whole community to be to be a part of it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And kind of my hope there is, um, you know, again, and just like uh, I'm sure we'll we'll get around to the kind of grassroots stuff, um, you know, and the importance of that. But you know, it, it, to me, like the main obstacle. Of having people come to the velodrome in the first place was the fact that the track surface wasn't smooth. Right. You know, so that's just like a huge obstacle now, now that's mm-hmm. out of the way. Um, you know, so having racing and things like that is, is much, much easier. Um, and you know, I don't know if we'll ever, like, I don't know if they'll, they'll ever actually go down the path of like trying to hold a, a bigger track meet there or anything like that. But uh, definitely, you know, that, that, that could happen now. Yeah, and, and even if it doesn't, just to have the ability to have a place to train and to, you know, have some kind of events to get track cycling more integrated into the, the you know, the rest of the cycling community, get crit racers to come out more frequently and, and ride the track. That's a that's a huge benefit to the whole the whole community. Definitely. So now you're you're off in Colorado Springs and you're managing the track there. You're working on the management team. What uh, what are you specifically responsible for? Uh, well, I, w- I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily a manager, uh, <laughs> but I, I I'm definitely there. Uh, you know, five nights a week typically, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I help run the run the Velo Clinic, which is basically like a, a you know kind of three stage class for beginners to get them. You know, or experienced riders who just don't know about the velodrome. Sure. Bringing them up to speed with like, you know, proper safety, how to use the velodrome, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. How to ride um, a fixie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know how to how to negotiate the turns and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, kind of my role there has been sort of like growing a little bit every every now and then. Um, you know, and one thing we were working towards was uh, basically I would, I would be putting on more racing, um, you know, trying to expand the, the programs that we offer there to the community right now. At the, at the moment, it's only open uh, Monday through Friday from 5 to 9 and then uh, Saturdays during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and in part, that's just because uh, we facilitate the uh, elite programming during the day, which is, mm-hmm. you know, like the like the Team Pursuit women and things like that. Sure. So what what's the local racing scene like out there on the track? Uh, you know, I'd say, you know, during the summer, it's not really, you know, maybe every now and then um, we'll have a race. But, you know, typically it's it's the wintertime when that's most utilized. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'd say it's, it's pretty good. We've had some good turnout for the racing we were able to um, put on earlier this winter kind of before all this stuff happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was actually making a big push to have racing every Friday night through the spring, but uh, that's not going to happen now. Yeah, yeah obviously not. When, uh, how, so how many riders will you get on a typical uh, evening in the winter? I'd, I'd say our A group's probably closer to like 20 or 25, and the B group um, you know, probably similarly sized. 
Uh, yeah. So, you know, we usually typically only have two groups, though. Uh, so it's kind of combined, like cat mm-hmm. one, two, and then cat three, four. Mm-hmm. Do you have a uh, separate women's field? Yeah, yeah, as long as uh, we can get enough women out there, it's, that, that's, you know, that's usually the, the difficulty there. Yeah. What, uh, are there a lot of people from the local cycling community who have come through the, the track? I mean, do, do you get a lot of percentage of the, a pretty high percentage of local cycling uh, participants to, to ride the track? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's people that come out there and all they do is train and they don't really ever line up for a race, you know? Um, So I I think that's kind of a – I think that's pretty cool, actually, because it's – just kind of demonstrates that velodromes can be more than just, uh, you know, a racing facility. Yeah. What do you guys do in terms of getting kids uh, out there to uh, ride the track? Um, not, not, there's not too much going on for that at the moment. Um, there's a couple of different, like smaller, uh, junior development groups that, that have, have brought some kids out. Um, and we, we have a pretty robust, uh, fleet of, you know, smaller bikes for kids and things like that. But, um, you know, that's, that's, it's, that's such a hard thing to take on, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's almost like a full-time job for two or three other people, like, on their own, separate from everything else. Yeah. Um, but I think eventually, yeah. like, that'd be a good goal to end up there somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the elite team that spends uh, the daytime working out in the track. Are you involved with the things that they're doing as well? Uh, no, not really. I, I mean, I, I just um, working there at night, I mean, that's pretty much all I do is work with the community program. Mm-hmm. Um you know, occasionally, you know, kind of have small interactions with, with them, but, um, but not, not too many. Uh, they, they kind of have their, like, I don't know, they have like their entourage, their crew, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's gotta be interesting to be close to that or have that there as a sort of a, you know, an entity alongside the community program. Do you see, spillover in terms of enthusiasm um, in the local community because that those folks are there or are they kind of off on their own and not really connected with what's going on? Oh, I, I think people definitely have a lot of enthusiasm there. I mean, you know, there's lots of, there's definitely crossover with it where, you know, the people that are, that are turning up to the Saturday ride or something like that, it's like all of a sudden, you know, you see a whole bunch of Team USA jerseys and it, it you know, it's the, uh, the women's team pursuit team, you know, they're in town right. training. They also came out to the group ride, um, you know, or, or maybe, you know, you know, people come in all the time and want to, want to try to observe some of the closed training sessions of them training and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, which we're actually not allowed to do for various reasons, but, um, you know, I think that, that people, they take a lot of pride in how good the women's team, um, is, you sure. know, just yeah. multiple world champions. Mm-hmm. You, uh, in addition to you know running those community programs, you also do some coaching uh, for for riders as well. Can you tell a little talk a little, talk a little bit about what you're doing and coaching and kind of what your philosophy is? Uh, yeah. Um, so I actually I have two different coaching gigs. I would say like one I, I coach riders um, sort of on my own as like. A, a privateer of sorts, and then mm-hmm. also work for uh, Performance United, which is uh, um, a 
private coaching group here that works with a lot of international riders. Hmm. Um, and I would say, like, you know, for me, I'm kind of like uh, I think my, my official title there is athlete mentor slash assistant coach. But, uh, you know, I kind of end up being like a, a sparring partner of sorts. Hmm. What does that entail, just being a sparring partner, just going out and rides with people <laughs> and pushing them? And yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll go out uh, on training rides, and you know, like I know a lot of the routes around here, so you know, when they're not familiar with it, that that helps. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've gotten pretty strong myself, so I can actually kind of help push people in different directions. You know, depending on what you know they're they're needing to work on, mm-hmm. um, and also just provide like feedback and, and you know stuff that I see. Like, yeah, I could see a lot of stuff just riding along with people that you know maybe other people wouldn't be able to see. Mm-hmm. Unless they were, you know, kind of there on hand. Sure. Are most of your athletes uh, track cyclists, or are they across all disciplines? Well, so with Performance United, it's across all disciplines. But um, you know, personally, the riders that I like to coach are endurance track riders, just because mm-hmm. you know that's my background, and I, I feel most comfortable with that. Um, sure. You know, and, I, and a couple of those guys have branched out into. Um, Oh, one guy is now uh, more involved in kind of stage races, and another guy recently signed with one of the USA Crit teams. Nice. Yeah. And so, uh, what's your what's your plan or your vision for your coaching, uh, either at Performance United or on your own? I mean, is this something that you want to continue to expand on and and build um, more of your career around? Yeah, definitely. I'd say that's that's kind of the path that I'm on at this point. It's, um, you know, I, I definitely, yeah, I, I like I like the process of helping people develop. You know, and I like just being a part of that. Um, you know, even if I could never become super great on my own, um, you know, for for various reasons, genetic or otherwise, <laughs> um, you know, I still I, I like to be able to help people get you know, realize their full potential in the sport. Um, you know, and maybe they don't have to make the same mistakes I made so I can kind of, you know, help steer in that regard. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, I'd say, you know, at the moment, you know, the future feels pretty bleak with, with all the uh, closures and postponements of, of events and, you know, probably yeah. the, I would say the total postponement of the season. But, um, you know, that's given that's kind of given way to a lot of other stuff, like getting back to just sort of the fundamentals, how I feel about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and like, like to me, you know, what one way to overcome, you know, like a, like a lack of talent would be to just be a super hard worker and, you know, mm-hmm. leave no stone turned and just try to become unrelenting mentally. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that goes a pretty long way. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting to think about. You know, sort of as I was listening to you, I was thinking, well, what are some of the common? There've got to be some similarities across many cyclists in terms of what they need for development. I mean, are there like two or three uh, key elements that that you try to work with people on that are sort of universal? You know, I think uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a good question. I think you know, typically what I look for in people or what I would think would be like a good indicator of success, you know, beyond just, you know, I mean, just like personality traits, um, you know, it just happened like, like, 
you know, wanting it more than other people or having like a kind of an innate desire to be successful with it. Um, you know, I look at like people like kind of their attitude towards like other riders, you know, like do they feel happy about their friends becoming more successful than they do or something, you know, mm-hmm. other people getting more opportunities. Are they able to stay focused um, and kind of stay even keeled? Um, you know, a lot of people get kind of like sucked into riding this emotional roller coaster of, mm-hmm. you know, like when they're successful, they're, they're riding really high, you know, when they're not successful, they feel horrible. But if you can kind of remain, you know, neutral all the time, that's typically, uh, that, you know, that's going to be, have some longevity to it. Yeah. Was it Yogi Berra said something like 99% of this game is half mental? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and, and also just uh, I think it has to be fun. You know, like you have to like to compete. You know, if, like I might line up for a hundred races in the year, and I'm probably gonna lose ninety eight of them. <laughs> you know, and the the two that I win, you know, those those will, those will be great. But um, you know. It, it doesn't mean that I didn't learn anything from those other days or that I didn't have a good time trying, yeah. you know, or that there weren't things that happened in those moments for me to be, like, proud of. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, you know, that it's not something physical, that it's, it really is those sort of mental approaches that that distinguish someone who's, you know, got some opportunities for success. That's an interesting insight. And you must uh, obviously get the chance to see a little bit of some of the things that go on, you know, with some of the elite riders out in Colorado generally and at the track. Are there some things that you're seeing in terms of rider development for the U.S. that you're excited about? Or are there some things that maybe you feel like um, the U.S. needs to do more more to improve? Um, well, so I'll, I'll kind of just highlight some some successes I saw, but you know, I'd say, you know, like most recently, like at the, um, you know, the world championships, right. The, the women obviously did exceedingly well. And, um, you know, there's definitely like no shortage of, of just incredible ridership, uh, there. Mm-hmm. I think, the, you know, the, like Gavin Hoover, for example, and Omnium, mm-hmm. he also had such a great ride. But if you look at where he came from, right, you know, it's like he came from L.A., he was riding mm-hmm. Rogers sessions, you know, good grassroots programming helped him become a good track rider. You know, mm-hmm. I can't speak to all the physical stuff that he's done to become super, super strong to be able to compete on that level, but, you know, the fundamentals were sort of drilled into him early on. Um, you know, and then I also look at, like, the community program um, at the Velodrome here in the Springs, we had a guy that kind of, you know, he was like a cat three or something, just turning up all the time. Uh, and he actually ended up, he's a West Point graduate, and he ended up getting into the Army's WCAP program, the World Class Athlete Program. Wow. Um, and then he was getting invited to the team pursuit camps. And, I mean, hmm. this is in the course of like 18 months or something. So, wow. Um, you know, I, I think that that was, you know, and, again, he was at the at the track really quite a lot for open motor pace sessions and for the racing and things like that. So, um, you know, talent's going to come out of <laughs> all sorts of different places yeah. if you're open to, to looking at it. But I think the kind of underlying thing is, 
you know, like velodromes have to have programs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people need access. You know, and there's a certain amount of people having the desire to do it, right? Like, you know, again, like I used to drive five hours to Northbrook to race because mm-hmm. that's how badly I wanted to race my bike. Yeah. But if that was in my backyard, you know, that would have been great. <laughs> that would have been a huge time saver. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's, and um, it, it certainly takes people who are dedicated to helping those people achieve. And, you know, they think about, you know, the importance of the people who taught me my intro class uh, at the track and how, you know, much they impacted my, you know, what little talent I had. They, you know, were able to get me to do some things that could, you know, make me functional, <laughs> which is pretty impressive. And, and yeah, that's, an totally. important, that's an important skill. I mean, as a coach, obviously, you have to really try and find those nuggets that will motivate riders, keep them coming back, and keep them excited about what they're doing. Oh, definitely. And, I mean, just my time in, in going to places like, you know, Vancouver that have, like, really strong grassroots programming at their velodrome or going to Australia, and they've got, you know, obviously in, an incredibly deep uh, pool to draw on despite – they're like low population, uh-huh. um, you know, but that is all like, you know, they, again, they learn how to race super young. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it, and it's just a different, it's a definitely a different vibe over there. You know, like I would say, you know, like they still have clubs that sort of actively produce riders, you know, uh-huh. um, and the people that participate in those clubs, you know, like when you're a master's racer and you're still kind of racing for fun at that point, um, you know, you're also being a part of that club. You're helping other people develop. Sure. I've seen that kind of go away. Like I was at the tail end of it when I first started riding, but, you know, just observationally that that's kind of gone away. So mm-hmm. I'd say overall that, that hurts the culture of it. You know, like we need more people kind of sticking around and parting their wisdom, you know, helping out in whatever way they can yeah. versus like, starting like a pro masters gravel team or something, mm-hmm. which no offense to the pro masters gravel teams out there. I just more, <laughs> mean more like that's, that's like the antithesis of what um, helped me get access to the sport. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's true in cycling generally. I mean, I think there's, you know, we're, we're not as good anymore at helping young and new people try the sport. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think, you know, that's, that's, it's just like a missed opportunity, really. I don't think it's like too late to turn around and try to solve that sort of stuff. But no, I'd say definitely right. at the rate that we're losing velodromes, it makes me a little worried about, you know, like maybe not a day goes by where I'm not trying to think about, you know, what I could do to uh, improve access or mm-hmm. increase interest. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, and there's people like that all over the U.S. trying to do those things. It's just uh, it's hard to every every region has a different set of problems, right? Indeed, indeed. Um, you uh, before before we wrap up, I want to make sure we talk a little bit about your um, Performance United uh, challenge that you guys have put oh, together. Yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit yeah, about so, what uh, what you guys are doing. So uh, you know, Andy Sparks, one of the I'd say he's probably one of the best track cycling coaches in America, uh, mm-hmm. or you know, if not the world. But he, um, you know, so Performance United is is his. Uh, that's his project, and mm-hmm. he was trying to think of ways to, you know, kind of help riders stay motivated in the, um, in, you know, during these times of sort of uncertainty. And, um, 
you know, so one one of those things that we decided or that he decided he wanted to fixate on was uh, 20 second and three minute power, sort of in a competition format where it was absolute power. Um, so anyway, any riders out there that are, uh, you know, kind of looking to try to stay motivated for something, we have mm-hmm. this competition. You can submit your best 20 second and three minute power. You have to do both. Um, and it has to be, you know, either uh, like a, some sort of training peaks file. Um, but yeah, you can, uh, submit that to my contact information. I think I gave you a couple of slides with sort of the, the general outline of the rules. Yeah. Um, can we send people to the Performance United website to find out more about that? Or is there another place that we yeah, should? Or, uh, or, yeah, or the Instagram. Okay. Great. We'll make sure to put those uh, links on the, on the show page so that everybody can uh, get a chance to con- connect with that. Sounds like, sounds like fun. So what are, what, are you, what are the opportunities to win? Are there some prizes involved? Yeah, we've got, we've got a few prizes. So ba- basically there will be uh, like a prize for best uh, – uh, male and female sprinter and endurance rider. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can submit as many times as you want to try to get better numbers. Um, the cutoff date will be April 30th. Okay. So there's still a couple of weeks for people to drop, uh, drop their files out to you guys. Yep, totally. And, uh, and we unfortunately can't mail anything out of the country, so that they have to be domestic. Well, that's uh, so it limits the limits the potential uh, uh, international powerhouses from participating, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I did have a guy from Ireland submit some pretty obscene numbers, so uh, <laughs> you, might, you might miss out. <laughs> uh, that's that's awesome. All right, well, we'll make sure to put those links out uh, to get people connected with uh, with the challenge. It sounds like a lot of fun. Um, I'm I curious. I'm curious to know a little bit more about your riding as well. What, uh, what, what kind of bikes do you have in your fleet right now? Uh, so my newest bike, I actually just bought a used Salsa Timberwolf. Um, I'm pretty, pretty excited to get into some off-road riding. I haven't nice. ridden off-road in probably 10 years. So Cool. Um, yeah. And then um, I've got uh, like a Donnelly gravel bike that I've been riding a lot lately. Uh, kind of like as I said, I live out in the middle of nowhere, and there's a lot of dirt roads, and uh, so it's been nice to have, be able to head out on that thing. Uh, and then I've got my um, road bike, the Ridley Helium, mm. and then uh, got a Phelps uh, FRD TK1 track bike. And that's all the bikes I've got. Nice. That's a good uh, broad selection. Do you have a yeah, favorite? Right. If you could only have one of them, if they were going to take all of them away except one, which would you hang on to? Oh, I'd probably hang on to the Ridley just because I really like to ride the road, and, you know, I can still you – know, there's, there's a lot to be done on it. It's a pretty comfortable bike just because it's a more traditional kind of road geometry, so sure. you can ride it all day. Do you have a, a Dream N plus one bike? Uh, Yeah, I was thinking about that pretty hard for a while when you sent me that in the email. Um. So my, my favorite bike that I ever owned was a Le Monde Alpe d'Huez. Uh, oh, wow. That was made out of True Temper OX. It was my first kind of nice road bike. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, at the time, everybody had 10-speed, and I had that thing with, like, uh, campy Mirage 8-speed that didn't really work at all. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but, but that bike, uh, I kept it for so many years. I did so many different things to it. Um, 
and uh, I really enjoyed writing it just because it was, you know, it was a classic geometry. It had mm-hmm. just really good steel tubing. Um, so if I had if my ultimate dream bike is probably something like, uh, you know, a Pegoretti or something like that. Nice. Going um, old school. Yeah. I mean, it's it just, if, you know, if you're not going to race it, right, you know, you don't need right. something that's like super high end. You just want something that's fun to ride and comfortable and, yeah. you know. I mean, having a 14-pound steel bike would be pretty cool. So <laughs> that would be very cool. <laughs> what, uh, as you as you think of all the places if you you've had a chance to ride, where uh, where's your favorite? I mean, that was really hard for me to narrow down. Um, there's a ride here that goes from Woodland Park to Deckers that I really like. It's just a very simple like out and back road, but the scenery is really good. It's a really quiet road. Um, you know, but uh, I'd say. Probably my favorite place that I've ridden would be like a tie between Horseshoe Bay in uh, the Vancouver area. And then um, I used to do this ride out to Bridge of the Gods. And uh, you actually had to cross over to Washington and ride the Washington side out to this like steel bridge that went over uh, the Columbia River. Wow. And then you'd ride back home to Portland. It was something like a 100-mile ride, but... Um, that that was a really great ride. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah, I actually never did that ride when the weather was nice. It's only I've ever done it when it's raining. So maybe one day I'll get a chance to go there in the summertime and ride it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it would be much better if it were not raining and, and 50 degrees. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, I, I took my shoe off after that ride one time, and when one of my toenails just fell off. It was, oh, no. uh, it was the most brutal thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> And and yet it's one of your favorites. That's that seems a little bit uh, masochistic. Maybe that's too telling about my personality. Uh, you know. I, don't know. <laughs> I love it. So what's uh, what's on your dream ride list? Where where would you like to go that you haven't? Uh, I'd I'd really like to go to Belgium and race amateur kermesses. But you know, like I mean, I'm sure I'd just get absolutely shelled just because it's so far out of my wheelhouse. But um, you know, I think at the very least it'd be really fun and just totally different mm-hmm. yeah I, I watched some of the the videos and seen some of the photos of uh zach kowalczyk going over there and riding in those uh derny crits <laughs> i just like oh man that just seems like chaos yeah that would be totally crazy to me uh i, I mean you know it's, it's definitely a different world over there mm-hmm. um and you know like uh but it but it, it it can't be too impossible. I mean, I know you know uh, Kesha or uh, Inakenti Zavulov or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know who I, he goes by many names. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, he he spent some time in the Netherlands, and uh, that looked really cool to me as well. So yeah, it's, uh, it would definitely be a great vibe to be able to to ride over there and and certainly to have a experience those races for sure. Yeah, I think definitely this this. Uh, you know, being on, on lockdown or whatever has uh, improved my, or informed my, uh, you know, ideas of what I want to do when we get out of all this. Uh, but, you know, I've probably watched every single year of Perry roubaix and Flanders now, so mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, oh, that'd be really cool to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Robert, this has been fun. It's been great to hang out with you. Thanks for taking the time to, to be on the show today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, was, it was great chatting with you, and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it.